Welcome to the Postpunk Podcast, episode number five with Wayne Hussey of The Mission. Wayne is a celebrated post-punk and gothic rock guitarist known for his work in Pauline Murray and the Invisible Girls, Dead or Alive, and The Sisters of Mercy. Before the lockdown began, Wayne had released his book Salad Days, in which part one chronicles his childhood in Bristol up until when he formed The Mission in 1986 with bassist Craig Adams. During our conversation, we discussed the original goth scenes at Planet X and the Batcave, as well as some of Wayne's adventures touring the U.S. with Andrew Eldridge during his tenure with the sisters. All of this, of course, leading up to the release of First and Last and Always, and its aborted follow-up album. We also touched upon The Beatles, Toxic Fandom and Music, and the forthcoming Lynchian Cocteau Twins meets Smith's sounding project Wayne is working on with his wife, Cynthia. I really, really enjoyed recording this episode. <laughs> well, uh, the second time at least. And Wayne was one of the most friendly and charming musicians I have ever spoken to. I am already looking forward to part two of his book, Salad Days, and I hope to catch the mission live when they tour in 2022. And now here's the interview. Incoming transmission. I thought I'd put on my uh, lucky uh, jacket. Um, I don't know if you can see that. Not Any? really. What is it? What does it say? It's a, uh, my dad gave me this jacket and David Bowie gave him this jacket on the Sirius Moonline tour um, in 83. Oh, you, hi, who's your dad? Well, he worked at, uh, for Capital EMI as a, a sales rep for uh, the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, so you've got lots of freebie records. Oh, yeah, yeah. He has a massive, massive collection. And like uh, he's given away half of it, but he still has a, has a lot of vinyl. I'm sure. I'm sure you helped yourself to some of it, too. Uh, Yeah, here and there. Got to go to gigs and back, go backstage and all that stuff? I was too young around that oh, time, okay. unfortunately. Yeah. The only gig I remember going backstage to then was uh, Tina Turner in the oh, mid-'80s. Okay. And oh, I met her, and she was very nice, but I was only five. <laughs> Yeah, she's going to be nice to you, five-year-old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was wearing a red <laughs> jogging suit. I think she was. She liked to work out before she did a gig. So that, that, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, I know. There are, there are some people that like to do that. I don't understand it myself. <laughs> I was just writing about meeting Iggy Pop for the first time, actually, this morning. And um, Iggy, when the first time I met him was we were playing some festivals in Germany. And um, Susie and the Banshees were headlining. And then it was Iggy and then it was us and then a bunch of other bands on before us. And um, anyway, I met Iggy. And so his caravan was next to ours backstage. And he'd be out there working out before he goes on stage and doing all the stretches and stuff. You know, it's like, Jesus, that man is, um, he prepares, you know, he gets ready for it in a big way. I think I remember a story uh, that Henry Rollins told about he was trying to compete with that working out for live performance with Iggy Pop and Iggy wiped the floor with him, which makes yeah, sense. Yeah, well, I mean, we just sat there and watched him drink, drink wine. <laughs> that was our <laughs> preparation. <laughs> Spectator sport. I mean, he looks great now. Even now his body is, um, he still evidently works out, doesn't he? Oh yeah, he's still he's still kicking it. Oof. Yeah, he is. Yeah, Formidable yeah. front man. 
Yeah, he is. He's got so much energy. My dad had a uh, Beatles room, a room dedicated to the Beatles. Wow. What label yeah. did he work for? He worked for uh, Capital EMI. Um, uh, yeah, wow, of course. Then, you, yeah, you would have, wow, but you got some stuff. Yeah, he still has uh, a whole bunch of collectibles. There was an episode yeah. of The Simpsons, I think, where the character Ned Flanders had a Beatles room, and my dad's Beatles room was like that. It was totally <laughs> like that. Yeah, I've got I've got a, a Beatles shelf in my uh, in my office, <laughs> but that's about it. It's just a, a shelf. Beatles books. Growing up, I think in your book you said that you had like a space in the wall with portraits of the Beatles. Um, no, what it was. <laughs> When the Beatles first became successful in Britain, I mean, you know, they took the country by storm. My mum and dad were, I mean, they are only, um, they're less than 20 years older than me. So, um, you know, they were into all the pop music and stuff. And they went out and bought a tea towel. It was a purple and white tea towel. And um, then my dad built a frame for it. And um, it was it had the images of the Beatles on it, on it. And, you know, their autographs all printed on it. And he put it in a wooden frame and we had it on the wall for years. <laughs> until, yeah, until John grew a beard and got weird and they took it down. And then it was used as a tea towel. <laughs> Sadly, I wish we kept it, actually. When they started getting really interesting, huh? Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, that is probably my f favorite period of the Beatles is the, you know, 65 to 68. Although... They did very little wrong in my book. I remember watching this. Is it some video with like I think it's Dick Clark um, introducing the video uh, promo video for Strawberry Fields Forever mm. and just seeing the reaction from the crowd? Yeah, and they haven't even gone full psychedelic yet at that point. But I know if you, if you look if you look at I mean you think of time as we know it, and then you look at the Beatles when they started basically in 1963, and then you see pictures of them just three four years later, and it's incredible the difference the way that they you know grew up in public. I mean you would just not have recognized them. It's almost like music was growing up right before our eyes yeah i mean it, it was i mean you know pop music became completely um the, the whole culture youth culture became overground i mean up until that point really it was like a case of you know being seen and not heard and the youth not really having a voice but you know the beatles were at the vanguard really of that whole explosion um i mean i, I do think it was a case of them being in the right place at the right time as well as being very very talented i mean you know they had three amazing songwriters in that band and three amazing voices <laughs> you know which one's not the best voice but you know you know what I mean? And um, so I think the Beatles were, you know, yeah, I mean, they became hugely popular around all, the whole world. And, um, you know, Harold helped Harold in that whole period of uh, the change in youth culture. Me personally, my favorite Beatle, I mean, I love... I love them all, but for some reason, George Harrison resonates with me the most. Yeah, he, do, he seems to do that for a lot of people, actually. I, I, I mean, George was definitely my second favorite. I mean, if you have to pick favorites, John was my first, and then it'd be George. But you know what? That, that's a bit like saying, um, you know, we've got five dogs. It's like, you know, okay, I do have a favorite, but, you know, I love them all, you know. So, I mean, I, I think Paul McCartney is amazingly talented and um, was brilliant in The Beatles. And I think Ringo was perfect for The Beatles. It may, might not be the most technical drummer in the world, but what he did for, for those songs was absolutely perfect. So I think George, I, I agree with you, George was, um, yeah, he was kind of like the soul of the group, wasn't he, in a way? He had a mysticism, a spirituality to him that was 
otherworldly. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was. I love that introduction to him in Yellow Submarine. I can't remember it, but the, the dichotomy was that, you know, he, he was also prone to falling off the wagon in a big way and going on binges, you know, and then, yeah, then he would go all spiritual and clean up for a, a few months and then, you know, fall off the wagon again. Um, I guess we're all a bit like that, really. <laughs> so you, you had a good childhood, uh, it seems, growing up Mormon. Well, I mean, I have nothing else to compare it to, really, apart from, you know, I mean, you know, I can talk to friends and, and the, you know, their childhood was different to mine. But, um, yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, it was a good childhood. I don't, you know, I didn't, there were no great traumas in my life as a child. And, uh, and I th- think, th- think back to it, it was a reasonably happy one. And, uh, it, you know, we were we were we were very working class, so we you know we we never had a lot of money for for spare for you know luxuries and things like that. I remember getting the first TV in black and white TV, little black and white TV for the World Cup in nineteen sixty six, so we could watch England win the World Cup. I remember that, and um, and that was rented. But you know, I mean. Yeah, it was happy. It, you know, we were it felt loved. The family were close, um, and uh, it was around that time as well that we started going to the Mormon church. You know, that had a in, big um, impact on our lives and the family. And um, yeah, no, it was a good childhood. And uh, you know, as I said, I was loved and I felt supported in the things I wanted to do. So, that's, what more could you ask for, really? They were very supportive of you being a musician. Yeah, they were in the sense that you know, if when it became apparent that I was serious about wanting to be a musician and they they bought me equipment they, dad sacrificed his garden shed for me i think it was probably to just get me out of the house as much as anything else because of the noise i was making in the house and he set it up as a little rehearsal room for me you know good playing room yeah they were very supportive and they they would come along to all the early shows i mean they still come to the shows now and they're 80 what they both 82 now but if uh, they were still you know if we play in bristol or locally solo or, or with the band they come along they love it and they've always been yeah very supportive but i guess there was a time mid-teens i suppose when like most parents i suppose it's like you got to take take life a bit more seriously than this you know you got to take into consideration that you might not be a rock star it's like nah of course i'll be a rock star but it was you know it it wasn't ever like it was never a case of them putting their foot down and saying no you can't do this it was um yeah they were they were supportive very supportive was there any indication that going to scouts with your friend John Klein, that he would go on a similar path? Well, I not initially when we were in the scout troop together, but obviously we both being Mormons, and he, he was actually from a different branch, but um, the two, because our branches were quite small, they were amalgamated into into one at one point. So um, we, that's what, how we ended up being in the same scout troop. But we started playing guitar. Both of us started playing guitar around the same time. And so we would occasionally get together at church with the guitars and have a little strum, little, you know, play together. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it was a case of John. That's what John wanted to do is what I wanted to do. And I lost touch with John, actually, when I moved to Liverpool, which was um, in 19, beginning in 1978. And the next thing I knew that he was on top of the pops with the corgis, actually playing guitar for the corgis. And then the next thing I knew, he was involved with the whole Batcave um, thing, you know, specimen set at the Batcave. 
So yeah, no, it's good. You know, it's nice. It's nice to see your friends. I mean, contrary to what Morrissey thinks about, it's nice to see your friends be successful. It's good, you know. And then obviously, you know, we I, I met him at the Batcave. By that time, I was in Dead or Alive, and you know, I went to the Batcave a couple of times and saw John, and, and I saw him a couple of times when he was with Susie. You know, when we, you know, we kept in touch kind of very intermittently over the years. Um, I mean, I did get in touch with him about a couple of things for the book, you know, just to. Pick Pick his brain, pick his memory. So yeah, yeah, it's good. I I met John for the first time ever in London for a Batcave anniversary party. Um, the last time I saw him, I was in New York for a, an event called Gothic Dark Glamour. Yeah, and they had some some of the stuff from the Batcave on display for this kind of a fashion exhibition. I think the last time I spoke to him, he was doing a book or putting a book together, mostly of photographs of the Batcave and the early goth movement, inverted commas. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think John was more, definitely more into the whole aesthetics of the movement. Than maybe I was, you know, I was, a, you know, I was a musician. And so I kind of just went with where the wind blew me. And, uh, you know, that's the, I was in Liverpool playing in Liverpool bands and Liverpool bands were more like more 60s orientated I suppose I mean you got the teardrop explodes in Echo and the Bunny Man in orchestral maneuvers um, dead or alive when when I first moved to Liverpool yeah they were all hanging out at Eric's and you know forming bands every week and splitting up and forming a new band and splitting up and uh, I mean that, you know I, I played with Budgie and um, Ian Brody from the Lightning Seeds for a couple of days in a band before it was decided we weren't going to be a band yeah I mean you know, you're kids, so you 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 know, you know at that point, you, at that point in your life, you're kind of just trying lots of different things. You're curious, you know. You you're, you're probably more adventurous then than I am now. But yeah, no, it was a it was an exciting time, you know, getting to play with lots of di- new, different people and getting to, lot, to meet lots of new different people. And for me, being you know the sheltered little Mormon boy from the suburbs of Bristol and moving to Liverpool and seeing Pete Burns in Holly Johnson for the first time, it was a <laughs> Bit of an eye opener. It's good. It's interesting to see the competitiveness between the music scenes. Uh, as you mentioned in your book, competitiveness between the music scenes between Manchester and Liverpool. It's almost like a friendly rivalry. Yeah, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like these days, or I don't really know what it was like before, you know, the late 70s. But yeah, by the time I moved to Liverpool, there, there was Eric's in Liverpool and there was the factory in uh, Manchester the two main kind of alternative clubs. So Liverpool bands would go over to Manchester and support Manchester bands at the factory, which we did a few times. And then they would come over to Liverpool and support us, which um, Joy Division, um, as I've told you before, supported us a couple of times at Eric's in the early days. So that was, um, you know, I don't know what happened to the Joy Division, but they... (laughs) Yeah, no, so it was a a good thing. It was very kind of... um, you know, it was a healthy competition. Um, there's a history of rivalry between the two cities, you know, that probably manifested most by the football teams, actually. Liverpool and Manchester United, there's a lot of vicious rivalry between those two clubs. But um, I don't know. I mean, musically at that time, it was a case of, uh, it was a case of, you know, the bands kind of all getting on and kind of almost trying to help each other. But um there definitely were two different scenes. But you did in, uh, end up on Granada Reports during the credits of one episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
1978, that would have been, I think, towards the tail end. It was, I think we were on one week and Joy Division were on the next, their first ever to- uh, TV appearance. Uh, that's still available on YouTube, but uh, the Dead Birds <laughs> sadly isn't. Or maybe it's not, maybe it's a good thing it's not on there. Um, I, I guess somebody at Granada TV had the hindsight to, you know, let, let's keep this one on, on tape because it's a good one, meaning Joy Division. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, yeah, we did. That was my first ever TV thing I ever did, actually, which was, you know, obviously exciting at the time because it was going out live. I never actually got to see it because I didn't have a video player and knew, knew no one with a video player. It, I never got actually got to see it. So it's there. I, I know people, other people saw it. So is it true that you were at New Order's first gig? Well, I... <laughs> It's a weird thing because I remember a couple, maybe a couple of months after Ian Curtis had died, I was in a band and um, we were due to play the local band night. It wasn't Eric's, it was the same location, it was the same club. By that point, Eric's had been closed down by the police and um, some new people had come in and opened it up his place as Brady's. But essentially it was the same venue and we were due to play there on a Thursday night, as I said. And um, I got a phone call the day before, I think, and from the promoter at the venue asking if we would um, mind if we gave up our slot in return for a, you know a nice support slot in a few weeks time to somebody else um, if we gave up our slot to um, they weren't called New Order at the time but it, it it was worded to me as you know the new version of Joy Division and I said yeah sure you know because by that point you know Joy Division had made two great albums and I, which I liked and as long as we could go on the guest list so I went down there and it, the place was really half full at most because we didn't have the internet in those days. So word didn't get around that fast. You know, the people in the know, in the city knew and, you know, they were there. And it was only the three of them. Gillian wasn't in the band. It was just um, Bernard, Hookie and um, Stephen. Yeah, they played. And I just, just remember Bernard playing a melodica during the show. And I thought, oh, that's, 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 a, that's a new and interesting sound. And uh, yeah, it was good. But uh, it's weird when I was researching my book and, and looked at the New Order history, gig history, there's no mention of that show. So I'm like, think, and I actually met up with Hookie when he was here in Sao Paulo three or four years ago. I asked him about it. He's got no memory of it either. So I'm, I'm like, mm. but yes, no, I, I, I definitely was there and it was, it definitely happened, but there's, um, but no one seems to remember it. <laughs> Must have been a good gig. Well, I think it was their first gig. I think they, they, they were planning to do some you know more higher profile shows and uh, they just needed a warm-up so they want to do one in Liverpool which made sense really interesting to me that connection with a factory and joy division doesn't end there because you know the three tracks that you did with Pauline Murray and the Invisible Girls are absolutely amazing yeah yeah well I mean I was between bands and in Liverpool and so I, I looked in the melody maker back melody maker they used to advertise you know music and musicians want wanted part of the paper and I saw, I saw an advert for a band wanting a guitarist and please send a tape blah blah and we should did and um, ended up being for Pauline Murray who at that point had just released her first Pauline Murray and the Invisible Girls album and she'd been in Penetration the band had been quite successful on the punk scene and um, so I went up to Durham which is where they lived it's, it's in the northeast of England and yeah I got on fine played some guitar with them and got the job and then the first thing we did as when I was when I joined the band was actually go into the studio and record with the Invisible 
Gilmore Girls with Martin Hannett producing. So that was um, that was quite something. It's probably I, know, I was going to say it's probably the first time in a proper studio, but it wasn't. I remember being in the townhouse with the with the Deadbirds, and we, we recorded our first single in the townhouse in London. So, but yeah, no, it's um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Martin Hannett was a character, and uh, it was him that gave me my first line of uh, white powder. Bidding. <laughs> yeah, never to look back. <laughs> he's all to blame, and he's not around to answer for it. <laughs> no, I mean, he's an amazing producer. I mean, I, I mean, you know, at that point, I didn't have a lot of experience in the studio, but just I just remembered that he was very, even at that point, I did know he was very unorthodox in his methods. And um, yeah, it was great. You know, I mean, I think the three tracks that we did with him all ended up sounding great. You know, I think that they sound lovely. There's something about Martin's records that um, there's something crystalline about them. There's just something about the sound he he got. It was very special. Uh, I think I recall reading in your book that he fell asleep while you were recording a a take. (laughs) Yeah, you would bring that up, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. Yes, that was. Um, that wasn't particularly great for my ego. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm I was in the in the uh, studio playing. You know, with headphones on, playing next to the amp, playing a guitar. And back in those days, it was a you know twenty four track, multi track, big tape thing. So it would get to the end of the song. I'd play along, get to the end of the song, and then you'd hear the tape going rewinding back and then starting again. And um, it was dark in the studio and it was dark in the control room. You know, because that's how we liked it was keep it dark and moody. And I couldn't see anybody in the control room. You know, I was looking and there was no, there's nobody there. And it's like hello. <laughs> at the end of hello, hello, what? Uh, can you tell me, give me some guidance or whatever? It's like, no answer. The tape, we <laughs> went starts again, play, play along again. I think this went on for, this went on for a fair while. I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine times. And I thought, well, am I doing this wrong or is, you know, what's going on here? So I put the guitar down, <laughs> went into the control room, which was empty, I thought. And then, you know, the, t- the song was playing through the speakers and then it got to the end and it, and it started to rewind and I heard... <laughs> snoring and I was like where's that coming from I looked down underneath the mixing desk and there was Martin Hannett asleep (laughs) so I was like great put Martin Hannett asleep (laughs) but if it's any consolation for your ego when I hear Searching for Heaven and apparently Bernard Sumner is on there I only hear your distinctive guitar playing I know that it's said that he was he came in and did guitars that you didn't do like you heard it and you're like, I didn't do that. Yeah, no, I, I remember, I, I remember when, um, obviously we recorded and, um, Pauline did her vocals. And then, then when I'd done the, finished up the guitars, I left, went back to Liverpool and then, um, can't remember exactly the sequence of events, but, um, I, I, I probably sent a cassette of the mixes and had a listen and then on the searching for heaven, there's like, it's only a little bit of, a little bit of a lead guitar bit. I don't know, three quarters of the way through the song. And it's like, I didn't play that. Who played that? So I was like, I rang up Robert Blamire, who was, um, who is still Pauline's partner, and said, there's, no, there's an, uh, another guitar on it. He said, yeah, yeah, that was Bernard Sumner. Um, came in, he, Martin felt he needed another little bit of guitar on that on that section. It's like, okay. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I wasn't there. I mean, I dare say if I had been there, then maybe you would have asked me to do something else. But, yeah, I suppose I can say that I played on the same record as Bernard Sumner. <laughs> or I should say he, he can claim it. He played on the same record as Wayne Hussey. 
<laughs> Better. <laughs> <laughs> that's an Ian McCulloch-ism. McCulloch that's what he does. Hey, have you ever, have you ever, met, have you ever met Lou Reed? Uh, Lou Reed's met me. <laughs> Here's a, a side note about, I never met Lou Reed, but my editor Frank did. Um, seen yeah. um, uh, a 30th Century Man documentary about Scott Walker. And he's mm-hmm. uh, he's sitting there trying to watch the movie and there's somebody snoring really loud, really <laughs> loud. He's getting annoyed. He's, he's, you know, shrugging his shoulders, arms crossed. And then he leans over to like, tap the guy and he sees it's Lou Reed fast asleep <laughs> with Laurie Anderson right next to him. So, it, so he leaves him alone. He's not going to wake up. He Lou leaves Reed, him alone. Like, Lou Reed can sleep during this documentary. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. God bless. So can you tell me about uh, Doreen and Planet X? And uh, that was like the Liverpool goth club, real goth, I guess, right? Yeah, although I, I don't think we were yet calling it goth. Um, I'm not sure it had been christened that yet um um yeah doreen when when i first moved to liverpool doreen was the um the door girl at eric's so you know when you turned up at eric's she would be there you know checking your membership card and, and taking your money uh, or letting you in for free if uh, she you know none of the owners were around um and when i first joined yeah she she was there you know so I, she gave me a membership card and, and just over time you know i got to know her from going to Eric's and speaking with her and like she knew everybody she knew all the all the musicians in Liverpool from that time yeah over, and just over the years we became friendly and I think about 1983 she started Planet X I mean she'd been working for a couple of the local record labels and I think after Eric's she worked for a little bit at a place called The Warehouse which opened for a little while and had bands on and I DJed there for a while and then she opened, wanted to open her own club she'd been down to um, London and been to the back Cave, which was kind of starting to take off and get a little bit of um, attention from British music papers. And um, so she came back and started her own club with her partner, Kenny, who also became a good friend of mine. Um, and yeah, so when Planet X, I mean, I was there when it first started, first opened, and I would I would take over from Kenny DJing when he wanted, you know, a, a break for half an hour, which I was, you know, it was fun to do. You play, you play the records you love in front of a captive audience. Um, so yeah, I was there. I mean, and, I, and you know, first few times I would go down in the afternoon and help out, you know, decorate the... Uh, decorate the uh, club putting the cobwebs up in the in the corners and things like that standing the coffin up and things like that it, uh, it was fun it was fun i mean it was all it was all new you know i mean this it, it they've all, all these things have now become cliche you know in goth clubs but at the time it was completely new and it was so much fun and as i just said before i don't think at that point maybe it, you know maybe it was just starting to be known as the goth movement but it's not it wasn't that's not what we called ourselves, you know. It was just basically, I think basically goth came out of New Romantics, really. New Romantics came along with um, bands like Japan and Spandau Ballet and um, early Spandau, not true Spandau Ballet. And um, I think just kind of evolved, you know, that there was a, a faction of it that those people that started dressing in black and, being, and gravitating towards darker things, shall we say. 
darker tastes. And um, that's how goth evolved. And then I think some bright spark one day said, ah, goths, you goths, and it kind of stuck. I mean, some journalists probably. And uh, yeah, Planet X went on to be one of the top goth clubs in Britain in the uh, mid 80s and uh, I mean when I left Liverpool I, I, I would go back occasionally and I would try and coincide it with a, a Planet X night because they were always a lot of fun and the mission we even played there I'm thinking about I'm going to say 1989 by which time we were playing you know big arenas and we went there and played um, a special secret show which wasn't that secret and it was uh, pretty hot and sweaty but it was it was fun yeah it was a fun club and, and during her um, part in the Liverpool music history from seventies onwards. Actually, I mean, she's a big player. Planet X, like, didn't that go for, uh, for original old school goth club? I think that had a very long run from up until nineteen ninety three, if I'm not mistaken. It- yeah, but you know, you know what? When it first started, as I said before, it wasn't it wasn't a goth club per se. It was a, a it was an alternative club. We would say catering for the you know slightly darker taste. But you know they would play the Bunny Men and Killing Joke and the Normal in uh, records that we all loved, but, but weren't necessarily big chart hits. And so you know it was nice to go to a club where you could hear this kind of music rather than the top forty disco stuff, whatever. And I think just really as as goth kind of as a movement kind of went overground maybe in the mid 80s you know around the time the mission started as well which was fortunate for us i guess or we might have actually been part of the reason it went overground um but um yeah i mean i think it's uh the halcyon days were definitely the mid 80s for goth as a movement you know there were goth bands getting into the top 40 and being on top of the pops and stuff so but uh, i know planet x carried on and i think it kind of you know began to specialize more and more as goth became more and more prominent and um yeah i think it did it went on well into the 90s didn't it planet x i mm. believe yeah. yeah, yeah. She should write a book, actually, Doreen. She should really write a book. She, it would be a great book. She's got a lot of stories to tell, that girl. <laughs> <laughs> it was at this point, the early days of Planet X, or was it a little bit before that you uh, joined Dead or Alive? I joined Dead or Alive. It would have been 81, towards the end end, end of 81. It was after my time with Pauline Murray, did the Invisible Girls EP in the tour, and then Pauline and Robert moved to Liverpool and um, from the northeast. I think really with the idea that, you know, yeah, we would become a band and work more and more together, but um, sadly it didn't work out that way. I mean, no discredit to Pauline and Robert, but they maybe weren't as motivated as... I was at that point. I was a bit impatient and things weren't happening fast enough for me, I guess. So uh, I was asked to join Dead or Alive. And um, yeah, after a little resistance, I went along and played with them in a rehearsal room and it was great, you know. I mean, at that point, it was very guitar orientated. You would, I guess, call it goth now, but it obviously at the time we, we didn't. We didn't, you know, it wasn't, as I said before, the movement wasn't named by that point. And it was, yeah, it was an exciting time for me playing guitar in, in a band. It was, you know, making decent records and making a decent noise. Um, we only played six shows, though. In, I was, you know, I was in Dead or Alive for two years, I think, more or less. And uh, in all that time, I think we played six shows. Was one of them the Futurama Festival opening for The Damned? Yeah, it was, yeah. Oh, that must have been a, been a fun time, if you can remember it. It's a very vague memory. I, I do remember that we, we got bottled. 
<laughs> oh, uh, I, I, well, you know, Pete Pete Burns wasn't. He was a very divisive character. Put it that way. I mean, in, on stage, he was very. He was, you know, quite an intimidating bloke, to be honest. Not just because he had a rapier wit, but be, he was actually quite a big bloke. You know, so you know, if you if you were in, we got into a fight a few times. Not him and I, but we when, when I was out with Pete and the band, we would you know sometimes you know the what they call scallies, the normal people with lads on a Friday night would you know come come around and try and beat people up like us you know it were a little bit alternative so uh, but Pete could look after himself you know he, he was big big boy can you tell me about this, the song Whirlpool off of It's Been Hours Now um, mm. that is amazing yeah well I think you and I spoke about this before actually um, it, it, for me it's probably my favourite song of Dead or Alive that I was involved in actually and Whirlpool was uh, one of the tracks one of the extra tracks yeah, I, I mean, you know, we, we came up with it in rehearsal as a band and I just remember going in the studio and, and it's like, wow, you know, let, you're letting me loose in a candy store. So I was like, you know, overdubbing all these guitars, acoustic, electric, and, and it was, um, and I think in some ways that was actually, guitar-wise, it was kind of, you know, me honing a style that would become more prevalent actually with the mission. You mentioned before about the Pauline Murray um, searching for heaven. You know, you, can, you, you thought you, you can hear it's my guitar playing. But I think by that point, I was kind of developing my own style, my own sound, which, um, and I think my time in Dead or Alive kind of honed that a little bit more. And obviously my time with the sisters honed it a little bit more. So by the time the mission formed, I kind of had quite a strong idea of how I wanted it to sound. Would you agree that uh, uh, Dead or Alive, The Stranger, was would be also a track that really was... <laughs> representative of yeah again we've talked about this before yeah i i i, I would say that the stranger was the template for temp, uh, tower of strength the mission song right I mean, it basically starts off with a little drum drum machine and it comes in with a strummed acoustic and then the track builds up and the band comes in so basically yeah i mean it's i'm, I'm not going to sit here and deny that i mean it's evident when you hear the two together um but yeah i mean you know i think as i said i think at that point i was developing a style a guitar style and you know there's there's millions of guitarists that are far better than me players but um my favorite guitarists are always the ones that sound unique uh, are the ones that have their own style you know i mean um you know someone like robert smith for instance is a great guitar player um but if you were to put him in a cover band he'd probably be useless but there are guitarists i've played with that can play anybody's songs you know and you say can you play like uh can you play like echo and the bunnymen yep i'm, I'm will Sargent. can you play like the cure yep I'm robert smith banshees yep i can play like john mcgill but then you say can you play like you know what can you come up on your own it's like, uh, you know and and they don't really have a style of their own so I think um, I was quite fortunate in the in that respect because I couldn't. I'm not very good at playing, sitting down and working out guitarists by other guitarists. And so I, I, you know, I did play in a couple of what you would call cabaret bands, but in, in bands that were cover bands, I was just called them. Then I did play in a couple of cover bands, but I wasn't particularly adept, you know, at covering other people's songs. I ended up kind of making my own versions of their songs, and quite a lot of my own songs have come that way as well, you know. So um, I, it doesn't matter where the songs come from ultimately as long as you uh you know they end up being uh, you you put part of yourself into, into the song here's a side note do you remember a band called modern eon yeah alex alex the singer was called alex i think 
And Tim Lever, who ended up being in Dead or Alive towards the tail end of my time in Dead or Alive. Tim used to be in Modern Eon. They were a Liverpool band. I had Why? a friend, a friend's band named themselves after a Modern Eon song. They were, you know, they, some people liked them for a couple of years, but they broke up. The song was Second Still. I mean, they were around, but they, they weren't really part of that. They weren't part of that, um, what I would call city center Eric's crowd. They were kind of on the periphery, a bit like I was really, you know. I mean, I knew everybody, but um, there was the inner sanctum, you know, <laughs> which uh, which base, basically was based around Eric's and, big, and the band Big in Japan. We did talk about this before, but you started your re- working relationship with Dave Allen with uh, Dead or Alive for uh, Misty Circles. Yeah, well, yeah, um, Dave Allen and Tim Palmer, who um, both loomed large in my life since. uh, Dave Allen was the house engineer at a studio called Genetic, which was just outside of Reading in Berkshire, which is where Dead or Alive went to record Misty Circles in the spring of 1983. And um, I got on Gone great with Dave, and then once we'd recorded the track, once we recorded the track and a couple of B sides at Genetic, we took then took the tapes to a studio in North London called Utopia, and the house engineer there we were assigned was t- a young Tim Palmer, and um, Dave Allen, as you know, ended up um, working with us on the Sisters of Mercy uh, first and last and always album, and then Tim Palmer ended up working on the first Mission album with us. I still, you know, really friendly with both of them um tim mixed uh, another four from grace the last mission album and dave worked with me on the the album previous to that some t- uh, the brightest light so yeah so i'm i'm still in touch with both and it's it's we go back a long long way i'm quite loyal really when you know when when i find somebody i like <laughs> that's the impression that i get just reading your book that you're a, it's very hard to uh to get on your bad side i think it seemed to be a very difficult thing to do and you tend to stick with people the most part i think don't we all really i mean if, if you're yeah. comfortable with somebody and you're comfortable with with you know with where, how they are and then you yeah i'm i'm also of the mind that i tend to think the best of people until they prove otherwise i mean there have i have made mistakes along the way of course and and you know there have been people that um i've got out of my life that uh ended up not being you know the relationship ended up not being uh what it once was but that's that's normal too you know i'm 62 years old i can't go through life you know being loved by everybody i've ever met and loving everybody that i've ever met you know so yeah but uh, yeah no i mean but friends are important to me the best friends are not the ones that you, oh, you haven't been in touch for a while you haven't sent me an email you haven't you know called for a while it's the ones you call after five years and say how you doing Ah, oh, it's lovely, dear. and it's like no time has passed. Those are the best friends. I've got. A I lot would agree like, with that. Yeah, I've got a lot of friends like that. I liked reading in your book uh, how you and Craig Adams hit it off right away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, trouble, I, a lot of trouble. Yeah, well, I, you, 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 yeah, you say trouble. We only got into trouble with Andrew Eldridge. You know, it was. I mean, Andrew's. Uh, I think Andrew's a year younger than me, but he always felt like ten years older at least. You know, because he was always telling us off for doing something or other. He was like, you know, always trying to spoil our fun. Um, I think he just saw us as being, you know, the naughty children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, I, I mean, that there was an attempt early on to try and keep the two of us apart. So he, he, uh, I would have to share a room with Gary Marks on tour and uh, Craig would be sharing with Andrew. But um, it didn't last long. <laughs> I think Craig, Craig just made Andrew's life hell. <laughs> 
So he said, yeah, right, you know what? I'm going to have a room of my own. Mark can have a room of his own and you put you two buggers together. <laughs> yeah, that'll do us. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, we hit it off. You know, I mean, by the time I joined the Sisters of Mercy, um, Andrew was already well into being Eldritch. Obviously, by that point, the sisters were already doing quite well. And, um, I, you know, I, I think from what I could gather, they kind of adopted a persona, the Eldritch persona. And um, by the time I joined, that was already well in place. So I, I didn't really get to see, I, I don't think I really got to see the real Andrew Taylor very much at all. There were there were a couple of occasions where I saw that mask slip, but... Um, you know, I, I I know Eldritch. I don't know Andrew, Andrew Taylor, mm. um, and he, he it's already already been well chronicled. But you know, we he's not he wasn't the easiest person to work with. It wasn't the easiest person to get on with when you're in a band and you're you know you, you're riding that crest. It's like okay, you can you can live with a lot an awful lot of things that maybe at other times would irritate you and you know be enough to to send you packing but um and you know i look back at the sisters and very fond of that time and part partly because craig and i got on great and we had a lot of fun together we did have a lot of fun together you know i'm being in a band certainly when you're young is all about having fun in my opinion going out on tour and having fun you know it shouldn't be serious business sorry I, i'll correct myself the business should be serious but then you employ people to take care of that for you and you just go out and have fun and I can't understand these young bands that moan about going out on tour. I just cannot understand it. It's it's great. You know, it was great fun. Great, great fun. Obviously, our you know behavior and our um, habits on tour habits have changed drastically these days. You know, it's more like uh, I don't know if you know the British TV show um, Last of the Summer Wine, but it's a bit like that these days with the mission on tour. You know, three old blokes telling old war stories. <laughs> And talking about ailments and talking about what medicines you're on and stuff, you know, rather than what parties you've been to or what drugs you've been taking. <laughs> well, we do talk about what drugs we've been taking, but they're usually um, prescription these days. Uh, Aleve is my friend as I'm getting older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know Aleve very well. Yeah. So um, since I'm a New Yorker, I have to ask some questions about that first Sisters tour around that time, starting with an iconic thing. Can you tell me about the spit, the vomit, and the origin of the goth hat? <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, basically, we, we flew over on a flight uh, from London to New York. It's my first time in America. I think the other three have been twice before. So they were kind of, you know, a bit blasé about it all. But I was, you know, like an excited puppy. Going into New York, anyway, we, we, we obviously, in those days, you got free drinks on the plane, you could smoke and everything. So, you know, we were sat back at the plane. Me and Craig were really, got really drunk. And, uh, but we, you know, we got through customs. We bought a bottle of duty-free vodka and one each. And Mark bought a bottle of Perno. Anyway, we got to New York when we were playing. We got back. We got there in early in the morning, I think. I don't seem to remember. And um, we were playing that night in Boston, but we were actually staying in New York. So we we went into New York, checked into the hotel, the uh, fabled Iroquois, dropped our bags, and then we got in the minibus to drive to Boston. It's a, I don't know, it's a four hour journey, something like that. Yeah, it's about that four or five. 
Yeah, yeah. So you know, because we thought, oh, let's 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 drink, let's drink our duty free vodka. So you know, three of us were sat in the back. Andrew was sat up front, you know, being the teacher's pet. And uh, yeah, we got we drank our vodka. And at some point, I fell asleep on Mark's chest, and his head drooped onto top of my head. Back in those days, you know, I had a big lot of back combed hair. And, and uh, anyway, it transpired he was sick. While we were traveling, all in all in my hair, in my head. I was I was asleep. I mean, we arrived in Boston, and uh, you know, we got woken up, and it was like sick in my hair, and uh, all right, all down Mark's chest. And then, I, then I tried to get into the venue. This was called the Spit Club in Boston, and they wouldn't let me in. It's like you're not coming in here with you know that stuff in your hair. <laughs> get rid of it. Go to your hotel and wash your hair. But, but the hotels in New York, not our problem, mate. <laughs> it's like. Thanks. Anyway, the, the girl, Ruth Polsky, the promoter girl who had taken us over from the UK, gave me some money and you know sent me to a shop across the street where you know, they sold hats. So I went in there and bought what became the goth hat. And that, uh, that was the first time I wore it in Boston that night to cover up the sick. So they let me in the club. And then after the show, you know, we had to travel back to back to New York. It was a crazy schedule, really. I, mean, I don't know if I could do it these days, but... Uh, Obviously, we had um, assistance aid in those days to keep, keep awake for a long time. And did you play Danceteria at that time? Yeah, yeah. The first time I played in New York was at Danceteria. And I mean, also because Ruth was well in with um, the club, um, we, when we were in town and we had a night off, we would go down there. I mean, even if you know, we played, I remember we were based in New York, so we would play Philadelphia and drive back that night. And we'd get back in time to go the to the danceteria you know i mean we were relentless <laughs> you, know, the, you know back in those days you know, sleep was not an option really and um yeah danceteria was it was a lot of fun a lot of fun that place uh, i do remember playing there the, the, and i think it was one of the first times we we played um gimme 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 a man after midnight the abba song and we only ever played it in america we never we never played it after that tour but it was that was fun to do but it's just seeing the audience's reaction it was, uh, it was quite funny um one more thing about new york i wanted to mention the the story or ask about the story about alan vega and the aquanet because that's just that's just so great <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, obviously back in those days, we were all kind of backcombing our hair, making the most of uh, what, what we had. And um, I remember the first time we went to New York, uh, Eldridge has already become friendly with um, Alan Vega, so we were introduced. And I just couldn't get over how immaculately quaffed his hair, hair was. And um, it's like, how do you do that, man? How do you do it? He said, Aquanet, extra super hold. <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, every time I went to New York, I would stock up on Aquanet Extra Super Hold and take it back with me for a few years there. You still have it, Aquanet? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, it, it was hard to find for a while, for some odd years, and you couldn't get the strongest Aquanet. But yeah. I think the brand is still there and you can still find it. But there's like yeah. Rave. There's one called Rave that's kind of taken its place and there's yeah. Got to Be oh. Glue. I'm, I'm an old goth, so I know... My yeah, the Aquanet extra extra super hold. And McCulloch used to use it as well. I know that we, we took, we've, we've spoken about it before. The Aquanet yeah. extra super hold. So one one more thing about New York, actually, one more thing. Um, as Columbo would say, <laughs> just one more thing. Um, <laughs> 
Did you ever? Do you ever? Did you ever talk to John Klein about about um, Danceteria in New York and the difference between like the Bat Cave in London? Uh, is there any like kind of story swapped or comparison? No, not really. I mean, as I said, <clears throat> I lost contact with John. I would only see him, um, you know, to, to speak too casually. We didn't really compare notes or anything. Mm. Not really. I mean, th- th- what what was going on in the Danceteria is very different to what was going on in Planet X and and um, uh, Bat Cave and other you know goth clubs that was springing up around the UK. The goth scene in America was it wasn't can I say it wasn't so rigid when 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 um, goth first started in the UK. It really wasn't rigid. There was no kind of uniform, but um, it soon became you know a, a den of black basically. And Amer- when it came to America, there there didn't seem to be the same rules you know about having to wear this or what with that or you know whatever i think people just to me just seem to be a bit more can i say it's like the punks the american punks weren't real really punk to me they were like what can i say cartoon punks in a way the american punks yeah i think yeah i mean that's yeah that's I might not agree with me on that one, but um, I think thinking about it, that's probably how I would see it. I, I, I mean, I would agree, yes and no. As, as somebody who's considered himself a punk and a goth, and I was a part of the a New York punk scene as well as like goth scene, hmm. I do feel like it was, you know, well, both I think are very constrictive and rigid and both can become cartoonish. They have, they, they, they became that way though. When they first, both yeah. of them, when they first started, they were not like that at all. They were actually, you know, it was a fresh, a, bre- a breath of fresh air and it was, uh, you know, anything goes really. It's just when it's just, it's the same with any movement, I think, any youth movement. When it becomes popular, when it goes overground, it then becomes diluted and it becomes more rigid, you know, in, in its uniform. And um, I don't know, it, it's just, it's just one of those things, I think, when any youth movement, when it it first starts is it's born out of maybe a reaction so socially to what's going on or you know artistically what's going on you know i think most youth movements are are a reaction to what's gone before obviously but then when they become commercially successful and starts attracting you know a wider audience then i think that's when it starts to get diluted and starts to become more rigid. And that's when the, a new movement is necessary to shake things up again and the cycle yeah. repeats. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to when I was, you know, youth, punk came along in, what, 76, early 77. I was a little bit too young, really, to be involved in that. Um, But by the time, well, you know, when, like 1983, when Planet X started, yeah, that I would have been 24. So, you know, that was more up my street. You know, I was more involved in that. And then the next thing that came along, what was probably the baggy thing in like 1988, 89, Happy Mondays and Stone Roses. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, every every six, seven years, there's something that comes along that shakes Mm -hmm. it up. And then then it it needs to, you know, we need it. We need it. I wanted to ask you about when you were on tour with the sisters and you were in Bochum, you met up with Daryl Palmonte. Were you friends? Already at that point, or do you just no, need to run? No, that, uh, that's when I first met him. But I, I, I kind of vaguely remember the night. It was only when I met Daryl again a few years later when he was work, when when um, working with Depeche Mode, and uh, he reminded me of that night. And uh, it was his birthday, apparently his twenty first birthday. And uh, he, he and I ended up being the only ones left out. And and, and I don't know. I somehow got back to my hotel and uh, 
I woke up there, but apparently he woke up in a gutter. He'd lost his jacket and he'd lost the watch that I think his mother had bought him for his birthday. So it was like, what happened to what happened to you, Daryl? But uh, yeah, no, we met up. We, I, I met him again five or six years later, and um, yeah, we got on great. You know, we were we were cl- close for a while actually, Daryl and I. But again, as you do, and you know, I haven't spoken to him for a few years now. You just kind of lose contact. But I dare say if I was to see him, it would be a big cuddle and, you know, it would be like no time's passed. He's, he's, he's lovely, Daryl. Oh, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah. yeah. I've been working with him on a few things lately and he's just, yeah, he's yeah, amazing. He's great. He's great. Um, oh, please, please, please give him my love. Oh, of course. Of course. That's why I mentioned him in this uh, in, the, yeah. in this uh, interview. Yeah, I actually was, uh, when his first wedding, I gave away his wife. It was on a boat in um, Orange County, actually. And uh, it was during the Cure tour and Daryl was working with the Cure. And so it was basically just the Cure. Robert wasn't there. Robert had flown home for the week. Uh, it was just the Cure, um, myself and my first wife and Daryl and Alison, who he's marrying. And she asked me to give her away because her dad, you know, the parents were there. So, uh, oh, that's a loud bird. He's excited. I think it's yeah. mating season. Well, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> cool. yeah, well, I don't know. There's, there's, We've got lots of birds here. It's lovely. I, I really like it myself, actually. But uh, oh, I mind it. It gives it ambiance, and people know that you're in Brazil. So mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you some songwriting questions on some sisters' uh, songs, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me about Black Planet and Marion? Uh, <clears throat> well, Black Planet was a, a tune that I had written and demoed on the four track port studio and um i'd written some words for it actually and it was actually called dance on glass i think yeah it was it was called dance on glass and i kind of written you know some words for it and gave it to andrew and um and then we did it one day in the studio we were doing first and last noise and i've finished that track finished uh putting it track together instrumentally and then had some spare time before anybody else was due in the studio so i just started working on this baseline idea that i had and i put it down to a drum machine and it ended up evolving into what was marianne you know the whole track was maybe done in written and all the guitars all the music was done within maybe two hours three hours and just sounded i mean you know you know when you get into that groove and it's just right doing this now this this and it just some kind of alchemy at work really when that when when you get inspired like like that i mean I, you know i listen to it now and i think what did i play there i can't really i mean, i can't remember what i play. can't work out what i played and i love records that you know that do that that you know i listen to them and it's like i can't work out you know, what's going on it sounds great and uh and then basically i mean at, at that point in the studio we um we would work during the day that would be craig and me and gary marks when he was around it was very rarely around and um, and that particular day craig wasn't there either it was just just me and the um the house engineer and then dave allen came in later in the day and then andrew would work at night with um with dave and then so dave was kind of doing two shifts i mean he, he would he would leave andrew in the studio at like two in the morning or something come in the studio when at two in the afternoon to work with me anyway so I did the t- finish the two tracks in in the same day <clears throat> musically, and then left them on the multi track for when that. Then when Andrew came in the evening, he you know he wanted to hear what been doing that day, so I played him Black Planet. And because I'd added some extra guitars and a bit of piano to to the recording that weren't on the demo, it was like mm, I don't like that, I don't like that. Mm, better the demo's better. It's like oh yeah, all right, whatever. And then so played him the second song. It's like. Mm, don't like that. Sounds like the Banshees. <laughs> it's like, 
all right, you know what? I'm, I'm off. I'm going back to the uh, the bed and breakfast um, where we were staying. And then, uh, you know, obviously a bit grumpy because, you know, he, he just um, you know, said he didn't like the work that I'd done that day, which is okay. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not, it, it, it hurt at the time, but I was used to it with Andrew, put it that way. So anyway, I went back and then the next morning I came in the studio and we put the multi-tracks up and there were finished vocals on both of the songs. It was like, these are strange, strange, strange working process, really. So yeah, so by that point, you know, he, you know he'd taken uh, what was called Dance on Glass and made it Black Planet, written the words for Black Planet, and then he'd written the words and called that song Marianne. May I ask um, your opinion on uh, Marianne? I don't know if there's a, a sister's song that is a real, true love song besides Marianne. Um, I don't know. Uh, you could say, you could argue there's, there's a few of them, actually. I mean, it depends on your, I mean, it depends on definition. your definition of love song, doesn't it? I mean, at first and last noise, um, Temple of Love. Um, yeah, but there's something about Marianne that's, that's yeah. extra romantic. And it's... Definitely in the music that you wrote. Yeah, it's a perfect I, I, song. I, I would say it, it's, it, I mean, lyrically, I, I don't, how can I say this? Because Marianne is, you know, probably my pinnacle of my time being in the sisters, my, my involvement in sisters musical, that was probably the, the, the pinnacle of it for me. You know, probably the best track that I did whilst I was in the sisters. But I think, uh, I think I've, I've lost my train of thought. Um, it was more of a, like an opinion about, it being the the true only true sisters of mercy love song yeah okay i know what i was going to say i yeah i remember uh, um lyrically i have you know andrew andrew is a great lyricist you know there's no there's no getting away from that very very smart and he would labor over the lyrics sometimes you know i mean they would you know he would be laboring over ly lyrics for six months or whatever which was very frustrating sometimes you know when you're trying to make an album but um with that album it, it seems to me that he he'd kind of gone against the way his normal working process and written the words very very quickly and whilst there's a merit to that i don't think that the lyrics are as strong as they as some as most of his other work to be honest with you mm -hmm. i think it works perfectly for that song don't get me wrong but in terms of the craft of Andrew's, you know, writing the lyrics, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think he did that a lot faster than he normally did. I think, I think, it, you know, it manifests, manifests that. Just a few more things about the sisters before I ask some mission questions. Um, can you tell me your recollections of the Monkey Mobile and the 101 and how much fun that was? Because that looks like it was a lot of fun. Um <clears throat> I'd, I'd love to say it was a lot of fun. Um, well, we, we we filmed it first. We went. We were in America and we did some shows and we filmed it. We were playing in LA and San Francisco, playing on the West Coast. And we we went. We flew over a couple of days early and filmed it. And we rented the Monkey Mobile and drove up 101 and all that stuff. And then uh, carried on, did the rest of the tour, played the shows, then went back to England. And then it transpired that um, some something in the processing of the film, the film got destroyed. So we then, um, obviously there was insurance in place. So then we, we had to fly back <coughs> to the US to refilm it, which was fine by us. You know, we, we didn't have any shows. We went there and we spent a few days in LA just hanging out and 
you know, doing LA stuff. And we refilmed the video. I mean, I, I, it's an easy video for me to make. All I had to do was sit in the back of the monkey monk mobile and pretend to be asleep. You know, the only frightening bit was when they let Aldrich actually drive. Most of the time we actually had, um, a stunt driver but it was it was you know there were a couple of shots where they had to, you know close-ups of Andrew and it was like fuck he can't drive you know <laughs> so it was like you know I was I was pretending to be asleep in the back but with one, one eye open you know keep kept one eye open but um no it was it was fun it, it you know you're out in the sunshine in LA you know we're, we're from the north of England which is rainy and grey you know <laughs> so it's like we're driving around in a monkey mobile you know and everybody's kind of looking at us as we're being on the back of a trailer being driven around down the uh, yeah the 101 you know it was fun yeah it was fun and and it was a two ended up being a two-day shoot which is um good and then we went to the chuck barris i mean i don't know if you know who he is but he he had a whole collection of cars like the batmobile and uh, the knight rider car you know in a showroom so we went there afterwards and we you know we all got to sit in the batmobile and stuff which was good fun and um yeah no it was fun and, and then we had a few days off and I, eldritch went off down to uh mexico uh for his lost weekend so he claims and well, craig and i stayed on in la we did I, we did the disneyland thing you know and stuff and yeah it was good it's nice nice time a ho- a, basically a holiday on the wea and you, i think you mentioned the book that it's, it's almost like <laughs> eldritch planned it that way that you would go there with, well, just by having, know, writing that in the lyric yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, maybe Black Planet wasn't the obvious choice for a single, but if you're, you know, if you're going to want to do a song about, you know, driving down the 101, it's like, okay, let's let's go to LA and do it. Let's do it for real. So I think, um, I mean, it was uh, very smart in his part, you know, <laughs> to do it. It's better to write about the 101 than the M62, you know, between Manchester mm-hmm. and Leeds. If, I mean, if, you know, it have been talking about that that would have been miserable two days driving up and down there but yeah no it was it was it was fun i mean in that's one of the perks of the job i suppose is getting to travel i mean i love traveling visiting new places and even visiting places i've been to before that's one of the things i miss the most actually about this whole pandemic but uh, there you go we're at the light at the end of the tunnel hopefully um yeah hopefully it took 30 years to receive your gold record for person last and always <laughs> Yeah, well, he's a tight bastard, isn't he, Eldritch? I mean, it went gold after we left the group, and but he was like, he wasn't going to get us one, was he? Anyway, no, yeah, we got it, we got it eventually. Um, I mean, it had long gone. Well gold. deserved. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, I'm not really one for all of those things, but um, it's nice to. It was just something that was missing from my uh, collection of gold and silver discs. You know, it's like you know what, I'll mine one of those on my wall as well, up the wall of my office. So yeah, so George, our manager at the time sorted out for us and uh, we were presented with them in in the end in 2017 Craig and I yeah it was good it's nice thoroughly deserved I think in your book you indicate that there are two periods one during the sessions for first and last and always and then later for a aborted a follow-up album where you created about maybe five or six mission songs that had their start between those two periods yeah, it's more than that, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, when when we were doing First and Last Norways, we were in the studio in, in, in Manchester, Stockport, uh, Strawberry Studios. And um, again, we were waiting for Andrew to, you know, finish writing the words. So we were just sat around with studio time, you know, going, going begging. So I, I would go in and make up some new songs, put them down, demo them as best I could, you know. And in that way, I came up with, when we were at Strawberry, I came up with uh, what ended up being Serpent's Kiss, uh, wake, Garden of Delight, 
there's three from that period. And then when just over time, you, you, know, you know, I'd be at home for a few days, I would get on the porch studio and write a new tune. So by the time we were talking about doing the second album, which would have been the summer of 1985, um, I already had like 10, 12 tunes demoed. So I, I put them all on a cassette for Eldridge and he was going off to Hamburg to, to write inverted commas. And, um, then, uh, yeah, then he, he invited me over to Hamburg and it was like that conversation. So you had to listen to the cassette. Yeah. And don't like it. Oh, all right then. So what have you got? You don't want to use any, any of my tunes. No, but you know it, that was the way it was at that point. He was he was always contrarian. I was always thought, well, you know, maybe they'll get be a, at some point he'll turn around and do another Marianne. You know, um, so basically, I, I spent four weeks in Hamburg and uh, just in this flat that was on the outskirts of Hamburg. We didn't had no transport. Neither of us drove. Um, there were no, there was no public transport to speak of into town and. He'd sit there all day watching German TV. He could speak German. And it, it was days before, you know, satellite and cable TV. So it was like thoroughly miserable time. And then he'd give me these songs with a drum machine and a bass line going, dun, 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 dun. and it was like minimal, minimal, and say, put some guitars on that. And then, you know, he then he would claim um, authorship of the song, which is okay, you know, and that's how you work and that's what the agreement is. But it was, yeah, it was a horrible, pretty horrible time and I just thought that it might be, would be, would have been a good occasion. By that point, I'd been in the band for the best part of two years. It would have been a good occasion for him and I to hate the word, but bond maybe a little bit and get on and try to see eye to eye, but it wasn't to be really. It was a pretty miserable time and, uh, I, I know I basically spent most of my time working on his his demos and um, all my songs being rejected, and basically those those ten twelve songs ended up being the first mission singles and album. I know Wasteland, Bridges Burning, Severina, Stay with Me, Love Me to Death. Uh, what else? Dance on Glass. Because um, I said Garden of Lights, Serpent's Kiss, uh, Naked and Savage. All iconic songs. Yeah, they're all they were all songs I wrote for the Second Sisters album. Not lyrics, just just the you know just the music. But uh, it's like okay, if you don't want them, I'll have them. <laughs> Wasteland, I think, has a legacy to it of just being not ever getting stale. Uh, do you have any personal feelings on that song? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think no, I, there's a lot of songs I've got. I mean, it was, you know, our first top 20 record. So, I've, you know, there is that. In Wasteland, I think in many, many respects was, is, was the, um, can I say, it was the pivotal song from that first uh, period, certainly the first album, I think. I think some of the lyrics I'd had, I'd had around for a few years. I mean, I've heard, um, I've come across uh, old demos lit from Liverpool, even from the Liverpool days, and where I'm singing and there's, you know, there's like heaven and hell, I know them well. It's like, wow, that came up with that as early as that? Wow. So, yeah, I mean, there were lines that were around for a while. But I think Wasteland, yeah, no, Wasteland, I'm, I'm very fond of it. I did get bored of it for a while and, and we stopped playing it for a little while, for a f few years, maybe in the mid-90s. And then um, when it came back again, whenever it was, 2000, started playing it again and it was, you know, it's fun to play again. I do, I do that quite often with songs. You know, we get, I get bored with them, so I won't play them for a while. And then we come back to it and it's kind of got a new life. Can you tell me about 
writing Butterfly on a Wheel? Yeah, um, um, well, I came up with the tune, the music, and then um, basically I came up with a set of words that um, we were on tour and All About Eve was supporting us and Julianne Reagan, the singer from All About Eve, was having an affair with Simon Hinkler on tour. And it's, you know, these things happen, but it didn't end well. And I just saw Julianne disintegrate, really. But it was one of those things where, you know, I, I couldn't really do anything about it. You know, you just had to stand and watch and let her go through it herself, I suppose. You know, she came through it, obviously, ultimately. But at the time, it was quite painful to see and to, to watch. So the song was born out of that. It was a song I wrote for Julianne, basically. You know, it was like, okay. So all that, I, I know there's a lot of people that think the, the lyrics are very corny and, and um, but I think being defensive here, but there's a lot of personal references in that song that she, she would get. And I, you know, I know where they come from and maybe Simon uh, that maybe anybody else wouldn't get, you know, so it's one of, it's, it's one of those songs and it's 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 uh, I still enjoy singing that it's one of those it's got the chorus is it's, it's just a, a beautiful melody to me by, by anybody and, uh, and you know not just because it's one of my songs I've got to say that there's a few songs out of my list of favorite songs that have a sense of empathy that you actually brings you to a really sad emotional state and butterfly on a wheel for a comparison like i listen to the cures of uh, faith and disintegration mm-hmm. for example can give a similar atmosphere so if people say the lyrics are corny i think it's it's because it's maybe they're afraid to kind of confront the emotion in that song because it's really really good well, I mean, you know, everybody has a different taste, but it is is this it's the song that the core, the hardcore mission followers who follow us around on tour, the ones that get up on the shoulders and you know chant deliverance and tower strength. That's the song that they all go off to the bar or to the toilet when we play that song. But you know, it's it's it's, it's our biggest song. It's our big in in terms of the general public coming to see the mission. That's the song that more people know than any other of ours. Was that your biggest hit or? Um, I'm going to say, no, in, in terms of chart positions in the UK, Wasteland was our biggest, uh, only by one place, mine, that Wasteland was 11, and Butterfly got to number 12. But it was, maybe globally, it was our biggest hit. You know, it's it was number one in South Africa, for instance, and uh, it, it did chart in a few other countries, not America. <laughs> but yeah, I think maybe it's it's um it's our most when you look at Spotify figures, it's the, it's our most played song. It's our most uh, uh, on YouTube. It's the most played song. I guess it's our most popular song. But it, contrary to that, is the fact that our core audience that follow us around hates it. <laughs> it sounds. Like, it reminds me of the Princess Bride, where he's like, "Is it kissing?" Hands? <laughs> you know, very savage. Yeah, it's too. Yeah. It's too. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I, you know, you can't please them all, you know. And and you know, I I think personally, I think is one of my better songs. I certainly think the chorus is lovely melody. I think it has, as you said, you know, I think it's got that kind of I don't know, it's got a melancholiness to it that kind of touches you if you let it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those uh, cathartic heartbreak songs for sure. There, there's a a connection, I think with band members between the mission all about eve and Exmal deutschland like kind of back to the sisters again isn't there like a one degree two degree of separation with all those bands 
Um, yeah, I mean, well, I, I knew Exmo and I joined the Sisters of Mercy. I think right. Exmo, uh, members of the band and the crew all were already friends with Exmo and obviously, you know, by proxy, I became friends with them too. So when we were in Hamburg, we would always see them and come, they would come along. And when I was there with Eldritch, actually, you know, I did escape for a, an evening or two. Um, Fiona from Exmo would come and pick me up and I would go out with them for the evening with Anya and, um, Manuela and uh, uh, was it Peter? Um, what was Anya's partner? Wolfgang, 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 yeah, Wolfgang, yeah. So, yeah, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, so we, we were quite close. And when we, when the mission started, XML did support us a couple of times in London, I believe, as well. And they were signed to the same labels as I believe for a little while, actually. A phonogram, yeah, is that right? Yeah, I think it was. So, yeah, yeah. I think they we, released Viva on Phonogram. I think we had the same A and R man for a little while. Mm. So that yeah, there was that link. Um, uh, in terms of members, I don't know. Is there? I think Manuela, the the drummer, joined All About Eve. Um, the original drummer, if I'm not mistaken, I might have the name wrong because I think there was two Manuelas um, in Exmal. Yeah, there were. Yeah, there was the guitar player, and uh, so they, they had a lot. They had quite a. Yeah, they were good. I, you know, I liked Exmal, and um, it's funny actually when we, I'm recording an album with my wife at the moment, Cynthia, and she's writing her own songs for the first time. And there's one song that we've been working on that really reminded both of us of uh, Exmal, which um, the way that she's, you know, Cynthia sings it, it's like wow, you know, I hadn't heard, you know, I haven't heard Exmal for a long time, but like that, yeah, there you go. That's we both kind of thought, oh, yeah, that sounds like Exmal Deutschland. Oh man, I'm looking forward to hearing that. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting record. I think it's 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 going all over the place, which is good. Um, it's it's totally driven by Cynthia. I mean, basically, I'm just the uh, you know the conduit. Really, I sit there and it's like oh, I, I think she'd be like the cocktail twins. But it's like, but the, you know, I'm Wayne Ussie. Don't you want a bit of Wayne Ussie? No, I want to sound like the cocktail twins. <laughs> can you play like Johnny Marr? No, but I can play like Wayne Ussie. Yeah, but that's predictable. <laughs> conversations like that so it's it's fun but it's you know we are getting there and we're getting some good music out of it which is you know um ultimately what it's all about i think cincha's idea is that she wants to make a record that when you first hear it you feel like you've heard it before without being um copyist or plagiarizing plagiarizing more than a pastiche but like a, a mood yeah, it's just that feeling that you listen, you hear something. It's like, I don't know, when you hear, when I first heard Cigarettes After Sex, for instance, it was like, wow, you know, it feels like I've heard this before, but, you know, it's a brand new band. And it, you just get this warm feeling when you listen to the album. And it's like, it just feels like, I don't know, familiar. I, I know what we're describing here. Uh, I tell people not to read Pros, um, Remembers of, a, of Time Past, not to even bother, and just think of that feeling you described. Yeah. The, that Prostian feeling. You you feel something familiar, but new. Yeah. 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 As I say, it's, it's totally been driven by her, which is, um, in many respects, it for me, it, it, it's given me freedom. You know, I mean, I, I really don't have to worry about things I normally have to worry about if it's a mission record or a, a Wayne Hussey record. So Before, before we uh, wrap up this interview with a few more things, um, and thank you so much, Wayne, by the way, this is... Uh, yeah, my pleasure. I, I was curious if you could tell me uh, the origin of the song "Like a Child" again, because that's one of my favorite mission songs. Yeah, no, I'm, again, that's one that uh, you know was written out of love. You know, I just fallen in love and uh, gotten married for the first time, and and 
you know, it came up the tune, first of all, and it was just this, you know, exuberant tune. And so it needed a lyric to kind of go with it. It's a funny thing. I think that song has evolved an awful lot since we recorded it. When we recorded it, we weren't, you know, obviously we weren't playing, going out and playing it live. And I think maybe if we had been going out and playing those songs live, then the Mask album would have been a very different album. But at that point, you know, we were a band in retreat. We'd just lost Simon and we were not going out and playing shows. So we were making a record basically not as a band, but as project in the studio, maybe. And I think that song, it, it's, it evolved over the years. The band play it live and it's, it's a very different, different beast to the, the record obviously the record's got violin and stuff stuff on it yeah it's a love song you know it's, it's you know what can i say it's a love song I, I kind of wish i'd kept it and written it for cincher but uh there you go wasn't to be uh, but i get the feeling with this collaboration that there's going to be some more songs you are good at writing love songs i have to give that to you well I, i'm not writing any lyrics in this album it's all her work I'm just, you know, she's given me, I'm basically, I've written one piece of music which sounds like a James Bond theme, which is, which I love. And the rest of it, she's given me ukulele chords, uh, very basic elementary ukulele chords. And it's like, okay, what, you, so what, you know, and then she gives me a bunch of reference, which, which are usually the Cocteau twins. And uh, yeah. so it's like, I hear it like this, or the Smiths, Cocteaus or the Smiths. <laughs> But, you know, it's fun. It, it's it's good. So, But, you know, she's pouring her whole heart and soul into it, which is, you know, all you can do. You know, she's immersing herself in it. It's it's something new for her. And um, it's, a, it's a process she's going through. And I think it's, you know, I just want to be there for her and support her and try and help her realize, you know, what is essentially a dream for her to sing and make a record. Well, from what I heard, the delicate balance of all things... Mm -hmm. That's the name of the track. And yeah. the, the new version you did together, Beauty and Chaos. Yeah. And wow. Yeah. No, she, she did a great job on that. Actually, you know, that again was mostly her work because Michael asked her to do it and sent the sent the back track. And, and then I set her up with a little studio set up here in the, in the spare bedroom. This is, you know, using the sapphire. And then she kind of worked on some vocals and then went in the studio over there and she sang it and made it her own. Completely made it her own. It was great, you know. I mean, you know, basically when I did it with Michael originally, it was a rock song, you know, straight ahead rock song. But um, what Cynthia did to it, I mean, I think was really brilliant. Yeah, I mean, she's released a couple of singles. We've already done a couple of singles as well. We did a, a version of um, Every Day is Like Sunday. Um, that was her first one. And then we did uh, another single that was released, I think, December. One of her songs, her first song. Yeah, so she's done it, you know. She, yeah, she's, she's getting on with it. I'm really looking forward to the record. I'm, I'm assuming it's in the early stages. When do you think we'll be able to hear more songs? Like in the autumn, do you think? Or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, we've probably got about eight songs close to being finished. I, I, would, say I, would, I would say we need another four um, but she's she's writing all the time. You know, she comes to me once a week, twice a week and say, I've got a new song. It's like, hang on, hang on. You're going too fast for me. <laughs> Slow down. But, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, no, it's good. I mean, 
as I say, it's all, all new to her. So she's, you know, in the throes of being very, very creative and creating in a way that she's never done before, you know, because she paints, she's an actress, you know, she's done artwork for me and, and um, other bands. So, you know, she's very artistically inclined, but I know, that, you know, music has been a huge, huge part of her life. And uh, I know she's always wanted to sing. It's just, um, she was always quite timid singing around me uh, in the house, you know, I, I would hear her in the bathroom and stuff. And it's like, and then, like she didn't like to be to hear, but um, now she's grown in confidence, and you know, I, I obviously I'm biased, but I think she's what she's got in her voice is something quite unique, and that that is a very very valuable commodity. There's lots of singers that can sing. I mean, I can sing, but I wouldn't say that I have a particularly unique voice. I've evolved into being a very good singer, but that's different from having a, you know a unique voice. Someone like uh, Morrissey, Bob Dylan, you know Bjork. These are unique voices. If you understand what I mean, and Cynthia has that, <clears throat> and that's not something that can be taught. Something that's innate. There's something special here. This record is going to be really good, and I, I got the feeling just from what the duet. And by the way, perfect David Lynch vibe in that video. Yeah, that was what we were going for. You know, basically, I mean, that was the desired effect. I, I didn't, I wasn't sure why I needed to dress up as a clown, but then I was, you know, I'm game for anything really. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, uh, yeah, no, no, it's it's fun. It, it was it was fun to do. You know, it really was fun. I mean, we did it during lockdown, and um, obviously we did it in a, a circus tent that usually we would not have been able to do it in normal under normal circumstances. You know, they were very very um, welcome. The uh, income from us doing it, you know, yeah, and it was good. We were very fortunate to be able to have that location, and also the the girl that did um, the trapeze work. She, you know, she worked with the Cirque du Soleil, so she was um, well practiced swinging around on things from the sky. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that was that was a Cirque du Soleil performer in the video. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about the Tower of Strength collaboration for Remission International? I'd be remiss to not bring this up. Yeah, it would be remiss. <laughs> not mention remission. <laughs> international uh yeah no i mean when, when the pandemic kicked in last year and we had to rush home from the tour we were on tour at the time in europe and um, we had to rush back from lisbon before the lockdowns were enforced otherwise i'd probably still be in a hotel in portugal when i got home it was like well you know this is all kicking off and now I'm big time all around the world and you know i'd like to help what can i do and i was asked to sing on a a, a song that for charity and i just thought I don't know that there just feels a little bit of a vested interest in this. I had to question the motives of the people. No, that's wrong to say that. I had to question my motives, I suppose. With anything like this, you have to question your motives. And I just, I didn't feel comfortable being involved in something I didn't have my heart in. And then, so I was talking to Michael Ciravolo from uh, Beauty and Chaos, who's become a very good friend of, of mine. And between us, we came up with the idea of re-recording Tower of Strength. Recording a song you, you, using my little black book and his little black book. And, uh, you know, just getting a group of musicians to play on the record that, you know, we knew and were acquainted with from over the years. And um, it took us a little while to decide on Tower of Strength. Originally, we were, we did think about Heroes by Bowie and we thought of a, a couple of other things. But then we ended up going with Tower because I could control the publishing for one. And I, that was kind of essential, I suppose, to the project, to, you know, to raising money. So, um, yeah, we I wrote a letter and sent it out to a whole bunch of my musical friends, people in other bands and, um, and a couple of people that I've you know, been put in touch with that I hadn't met before. 
And uh, yeah, I got a great response. And um, I think there was 22, 23 people actually on that record. And yeah, I mean, it took me a little two or three months to put the whole thing together. Four months maybe by the time it was mastered. And yeah, we released it. It's raised money for COVID-19 related charities. Um, all the charities were nominated by all the people that were were involved in the record. And um, the people behind the scenes as well, you know, the, the label people and everybody <coughs> had a percentage of the proceeds to pay to their own nominated charity. And yeah, it's raised a reasonable amount, I think. We managed to pay out £55,000 just before Christmas, and we expect to be able to pay out a similar amount this uh, coming summer. So yeah, it's done some good. And um, as I said, when anything like this, you do have to question your motives because I think there is it can be seen as self-serving. And I, I didn't really, I really didn't want it to come across like that. But yeah, it was good. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people involved who, and um, I'm proud that they were involved, you know, on the record. It's amazing you got all those people together. It gives me heart, though, to see that so many people cared. Yeah, it was, well, you know, I mean, I mean, as I said, there were 22, 23 people actually on the record. It took an awful lot of editing to get, to get everybody on, I'll tell you. And um, even in some cases, you know, I had to cajole people look just put it on your phone i can't record it on wayne that's right just record on your phone billy duffy recorded his guitar solo on his phone sent that to me you know it's like come on you can do it and obviously there were also a lot of people that i contacted that um didn't reply there were other people that declined um which is fair enough you know absolutely fair enough but yeah I mean, it's good i mean you know we've got budgie and kevin haskins playing drums andy rourke from the smiths playing bass um we've got richard fortas robin fink Midior, um michael Ciravolo. i'm forgetting somebody billy duffy as i said playing guitar loads of singers gary newman martin gore oh lol tal hurst um contributed a bit um few noises loop and stuff so yeah so i mean everybody's on there some somewhere along the line thank you for doing it i have a sister who's a frontline worker so i really appreciate it yeah it was a good thing for us to do it's a, it's been a trying time for all of us this last year and uh, it's just from my point of view it's just us trying to put something back something good back from what we've taken from our audiences for all these all these years are you uh, looking forward to seeing the audiences in person? I, I know that there's rescheduled tour dates in Europe, and hopefully you'll play the U.S. again because I think it's been a long time, right? Yeah, last time we were in the U.S. was 2013, I believe. Uh, it's time to do it again, I think. Yeah, I'd like to. I mean, logistically, it's always a problem um, all over the place, really. But um, yeah, I'd like to do it. Uh, yeah, we have a rescheduled tour, European tour, March, April next year. We have some festivals this summer. Um, lined up whether they'll go ahead remains to be seen but um we'll see and yeah of course you know once we get out there and start playing again it'll be it'll be you know i think there'll be a lot of emotion from both the band and and the audience so be a release i'm so looking forward to it wayne mm. this has been a great interview <laughs> take two uh, take victims two. of circumstance edition <laughs> <laughs> yes um, is there um, anything else we forgot to promote that's coming up or that you needed to, we needed to mention? Oh, I, you know what? I, there is something. Hmm. <laughs> I, I meant to ask you, I didn't want to talk about um, the, the fights between leaving the sisters, you and Craig. Hmm. I'm not interested in that, that drama, me personally, um, but I'm wondering, maybe that's something you'll explore in part two of your book. 
Yeah, and well, obviously, you know, I mean, the, the first book um, ended on the day that Craig and I left the sisters. So there was no acrimony at the time. Well, there was between Andrew and Craig, but not between Andrew and myself. That, that was to come later. And yeah, that's all, that's all, you know, that's all documented in the book. But uh, ultimately, it's um, it's the story of the mission, really. Book two is the story of the mission. And uh, obviously, our little contretemps with uh, Eldritch at the beginning they were, were a big part of that at the beginning. Yeah, it's, it's all the dirt will be dished. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I'll say that. Yeah. Um, I also, um, before we go, I wanted to praise your uh, taking a stand against toxic fandom because there's been quite a bit of toxic fandom, I believe, between just the Mission Sisters thing. There's, there's a bit of vitriol that's been over the years. Yeah. And what you... I'm 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 apparently the guitarist that can't be mentioned on certain forums, <laughs> which I'm quite proud of actually. It's it's and nice it's, it's nice to antagonise that bunch of miserable gits. I was going to mention that yeah you you know it comes up again and again in the music fandom and you know you the other week you uh, posted your uh, liking Billie Eilish yeah I do and yeah. people yeah. were. Being yeah, a, they're minority. There's, the, but but it's all over the place on the internet. It's not just mission, you know. It's not just us that suffer. But it's it's just the toxicity that's just prevalent in social media, just generally. It's uh, it's just there's no need for it, you know. There's 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 so much shit going on in the world. We you don't need need that. And I think. It, it, it's just music, you know, so what? I like Billie Eilish. It's not a big deal. You know, there's no point to hate me for it or hate her for it. You know, it's just a personal taste. I dare say, you know, some of the music that these people like, I wouldn't like, you know, but I don't go on there and slag them off for it. It's, it's, it, it's, it's not worth talking about, really. It's just, it sometimes winds me up, I have to say, but uh, it passes very quickly. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think it's uh, better to be uh, focused on what you love. And if you don't like something, don't listen to it. Yeah, don't. Yeah, and you don't need to, you know, make n nasty comments about it either. Okay, we're all entitled to opinion, but... Well, there's far too much darkness in the world right now not to, yeah, to, to I, add more to it. I, I, I think it's time to share some love. I agree, absolutely, totally. Thank you for listening to the Postpunk Podcast, episode number five with Wayne Hussey. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe, and support us on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash postpunk. That is patreon.com slash postpunk. We can't do this without your support, so thank you. I'd also like to thank Jason Corbett from Actors for the intro music, Corinne for the outro music, and Jenna, our producer, and also our editors, Frank Deserto and Andy Herman. Love you guys. So until next time, please visit our website, post-punk.com. That is post-punk.com for music news, video premieres, and more. Cheers. <laughs>